Take this away, Steve, all right? Yeah. The glamorous assistant, thank you. Um, just to back up, oh, just to back up what Dave's saying, um, a lot of, uh, of honour to my wife, Michelle. Um, you hear the saying, behind every great man is a great woman. No, in our marriage, beside me is an amazing woman. So uh, I hope the Holy Spirit inspires me as well. <laughs> I think I'm done, Dave, right there. Uh, I don't know if you walked in this morning. Uh, when I walked in, you could smell the British sugar smell. Not very, not very pleasant. Then coming in here with the worship, the Holy Spirit, the essence of God was palpable. You could smell it. You could feel it. And thank you for everyone that brought a word, uh, the tongue, pictures. Um, they tie in so well what I'm going to bring. So that's really encouraged me. Thank you for that. Okay, so <clears throat> interesting subject today. Um, you've probably all heard of the story, or read it in the Bible, but I'm going to talk about the adulterous woman. Uh, so just put, put it in, into, into context. Jesus, at this time, was spending his time talking. Do you want me to walk forward or back, John? No, okay. Uh, speaking, teaching at the temple. So we picked this up just after Jesus had already been speaking the previous day. So it's uh, John 8, verse 1 to 11. Brilliant, Sam. Thank you. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust of his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped back down and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, till only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Okay, it's quite a powerful story. If you've read it, it's quite a horrible situation you can think of. We're all different, not just in looks, but how we think about things. Our opinions, political views, the sports and teams we support. Manchester United. <laughs> and the fa our favourite foods. Even how people preach and teach in our church. Just think about those who regularly stand at the front. You had Dave, or as I like to call him, Pastor Dave. Within his sermon, at some point, he will mention how beautiful Northern Ireland is, or how he talks correctly, and everyone else doesn't. <laughs> he will also research his subject in depth and be very passionate about how much he loves Jesus, the church, and us. JP. JP is a very intelligent person. He digs down deep into the history, the facts, the figures, and will often provide visual aids to demonstrate this and help us understand it. John Putnam goes deep into the subject and will often quote past stories and situations that link into his subject. And he will say at some point, dear friends, I tell you this. Because he has genuine love for those he's talking to. Andrew Fife. Yep, he's covered my plan a little bit. I started writing this before they moved to South Africa. Um, 
He has a really good way of putting over his subject matter in a down-to-earth, honest way, which is easy to understand, and he seamlessly unlocks the mysteries of the Bible. Norman Blows brings so much energy and passion and has such a heart for seeing people saved and so honest that he really connects with people. There's always a little bit of acting out or jumping around along the way. And who can forget Nick Bolton throwing a fresh fish into the congregation on one of his talks? Unbelievable. And you're probably wondering, what has this got to do with the verses from John 8? Well, there is a crowd. And into that crowd, a group of Pharisees and teachers of religious law drag this woman to where Jesus is, right in the middle of the temple. They don't care about her. She's totally unimportant to them. All they care about is trying to trap Jesus into saying something they can catch him out on. Their agenda has nothing to do with her. She could be just about anyone. They're looking to use her to get at Jesus. That's incredible. They're prepared to kill someone just to make a point. And what does Jesus do? Well, he starts to write in the dust. First off, I think he cares very deeply for this woman. In fact, he loves her. He cares for everyone. He came as a saviour for all, including religious leaders who brought this woman to him. You know, Jesus must have felt a little bit frustrated with the religious leaders. First of all, they'd been teaching the people of Israel for years and years from the scriptures for telling of his coming, and they totally miss it. In fact, there are 47 or so Old Testament verses about Jesus as the Messiah. One, he'd be born in Bethlehem. He'd be born to a virgin. He would come from the line of Abraham. A massacre of children would happen at his birthplace. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. He'd be betrayed, be crucified with criminals. And many, many more, all listed in the Old Testament. You know, it reminds me of a story I heard once before about a man in a flood. So there's this man, there's a news report, there's going to be a big, big flood and people are told to evacuate the area. But he says, you know, I'll, I'll pray to God. God will save me. And as the waters start to rise, this big truck comes down the road, and they knock on his door and say, quick, quick, come with us, come with us. The floods are rising. And then he says, it's fine. God will save me. The truck moves on. A few hours later, the water's really rising now. It's now up to the first floor window, so he's actually up in his bedroom at the window. And his boat comes along, and they go, quick, quick, get in the boat, get in the boat. You're going to die. The water's rising. He goes, no, 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 it's fine. God will save me. God will save me. And the water carries on rising. Now he's on the roof, clinging on to his chimney breast because the water's coming up the tiles. And his helicopter arrives. And they go, quick, quick, get in, get in. You're going to drown. And he goes, no, 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 it's fine. You don't understand. God will save me. God will save me. And he drowns. The water rises and he drowns. And he goes to heaven. He goes, God, he goes, I trusted you. You would save me. And he said, God goes, well, I don't know what you expect. He goes, I sent a tro- truck, I sent a boat and a helicopter. What do you expect? You know, sometimes God provides an answer to prayer, and we're so busy in our situation, we have our own expectation of what that answer should look like, we completely don't see his provision. Jesus spoke with such knowledge, clarity, and wisdom. Not once did they say, wow, how does a man from this humble background have such insight into the scriptures? Remember when he was 12, his parents found him with the teachers at the temple, and they were amazed in his knowledge and understandings and his answers to the questions. The Bible tells of many stories, wonders, and miracles Jesus carried out while on earth, and religious leaders totally ignore them. 
in fact, my, one of my favourite stories is they condemned a man who was healed, he'd been invalided for 38 years because he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath, which they considered against the law. He was only carrying it because he'd been healed, he was no longer disabled, and they didn't even dispute the fact he was healed. If you read the story, they don't say, well, you're not healed. He was healed, but you carried your mat. Unbelievable. It must have broken his heart. Here's a group of people who for centuries have been teaching about the arrival of the Messiah. They knew all the signs that would identify Jesus as the Messiah. And they're so caught up in their own pride and position, they decide to totally ignore everything. In John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus even points this out to them. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. So these religious leaders of the law have dragged this woman, caught in the very act of adultery, in front of him. I mean, this is a massively unpleasant situation. She's literally been dragged into the streets, through the crowds. The temple's full of people, and she's just been dragged right in front of him. And she's the center of everyone's attention. She's waiting for the word to stone her to death, because that's what they did in them days. And where's the other guilty party? Well, he seems to slip away somewhere, hasn't he? And the, and the blame is sitting squarely on her shoulders, and she's left there to deal with it. And she's about to receive the full force of the law. Death. Jesus knows she's been caught in the act of adultery, and he doesn't dispute this. She has no defense, and is totally reliant on, the, on his grace and the mercy of Jesus. He knows she has sinned, and it's a sin punishable by death. We know Jesus loves her, as he does everyone. So I don't think his first thought is, how do I get out of this really bad situation? I think it's, how can I save her when this group of people have already made their minds up about her and want to see her stoned to death? Don't get me wrong, Jesus didn't condone her sin. In fact, his final words to her are, sin no more. Jesus takes sin very seriously. Either she'll be condemned to her fate or receive grace and forgiveness. This is what we get as Christians. Just like the different styles of preaching I mentioned, we're all different in so many ways, but Jesus' first thought about us is how much he loves us, wants us an eternal life with him. Just look around today, uh, the mental health crisis, the NHS at breaking point, trying to deal with the massive numbers of people suffering mental health issues and the sad number of people who decide that suicide is the answer to their problems. And we live in a society where pe other people are quick to judge and condemn each other purely based on different opinion. Just look at Brexit and COVID-19. Social media was awash with strongly opposing viewpoints. A lot of it was angry and aggressive, creating a very toxic atmosphere hard to avoid. Now, a number of years ago, I went through a lot of life stuff. Life happened, and some of it wasn't pleasant. And through it all, all kinds of things were said. Some of it was true, some was half true, some was totally untrue. And I was unable to control much of it. I was listening to the radio one day, while driving to work, and this song came on, and I instantly connected to it. It wasn't a Christian song. The song was about a guy who was fed up with people trying to label him and define him and let him be who he wanted to be. And the strap line of the song was, I am whatever you say I am. Basically, he was saying, whatever. If you think that about me, that's fine. I don't care. So I did the same. 
and I built walls to distance myself from what was going on. But the trouble with walls is, once they're built, only they keep things out, they keep things trapped in. And the issues had already caused damage. I'd, and I'd often revisit these issues as they were trapped inside me. Then in 2018, Michelle and I went, Michelle and I went to Big Church Day Out. If you've never been, I'd highly recommend it. 20 to 30,000 people gathering to worship Jesus. And over two days in June, it's, it's lovely. During the first day, Hillsong um, London worship team came on stage and did an hour of worship. Now, I'm not an emotional person, as most of you know. Halfway through the first song, there may be one or two tears. The song. Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. In my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who I say I am. The Holy Spirit didn't just wipe out the walls. He dug out the foundations and chucked them out the door. For years, every time I went to church, I felt like the woman caught in adultery and brought before Jesus all the things in the past, all the things I trapped in the walls. It was like the religious leaders saying to me, you're guilty, you're not worthy of praising God. And for me, that one song was Jesus stooping down in the sand and writing, you are who I say you are, forgiven, accepted, and a child of God. I went from, I am what you say I am, what the world would say, to who you say I am, what Jesus would say. I am what you say I am. I went from a what to a who in an instant. Then the next song came on and just about sealed the deal, really. Two lines from one of the, one of the choruses. There's no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Perfect. Jesus died on the cross to enable us to be forgiven. It was the only way a perfect sacrifice in our place so we could receive his grace and his mercy. The religious leaders who brought this woman for Jesus weren't bothered about what she was or who she was. She was an adulterous woman. They could use her to discredit Jesus. If he condemned her to death, then he would, which he would have been his right to do so, he wasn't the forgiving Messiah and our forgiving saviour. If he didn't condemn her, then he was an enemy of the, of the Lord Moses. Either way, he would lose credibility. The fact she was a living, breathing person was not a concern to them. They were only looking to score political points. We see that every day on the TV. Arguments, debates, no one's really interested in, in, in some of the results. They just want to score points. That's all they're doing. It's sad. They're not thinking about the people behind the subjects. The irony of this is that Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. He's the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Instead of shedding the animal's blood for forgiveness, which was the religious law at the time, Jesus came to die on the cross, shed his blood for us, enable us to have eternal life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is both saviour and a God of justice. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote in the dust. All the Bible says is he stooped down and wrote with his finger. Various Bible commentators have speculated what this could be. Uh, many of them speculate it could be the Ten Commandments. And as he wrote them, you shall, not have no, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. On your father and your mother, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let the one we've never sinned 
throw the first stone. And it could be that as they read the list of Ten Commandments, they identified their own sin and were so convicted of their sin, they were compelled to walk away. Another theory is that maybe he wrote down the names of those the lady had slept with and been adulterous with. And again, they were so convicted of seeing their names there, they walked away. We, we, we just don't know. But what if Jesus wrote things that turned her from a what to a who? For someone to trap Jesus to a person who had purpose and reason to be spared and forgiven, maybe he wrote sister, daughter, granddaughter, wife, mother. And these things would have connected to the hearts of those people standing there. Then the second time he, stepped, he stooped down, he wrote, all accepted through grace. We don't know, just my theory. Other people's opinions are powerful. They shape the world we live in and can influence how we see and feel about ourselves. Those who preach and teach also influence how we view and understand Bible verses. And it's great we have these different styles within our church. We get a balanced and consistent view of what the Bible teaches us. But this comes with great responsibility and accountability. Social media has many good points, but also so many horrible elements with almost no accountability. We too often hear the sad story that someone has taken their own life. And when they look through their social media accounts, there are signs of them being heavily influenced by things they've seen or read or online bullying. What other people say about us is hard to ignore, especially if there are elements of truth in it. And the things that have been said by the enemy, he just loves to get on our shoulders, doesn't he, and whisper in the ear, are you really forgiven? Are you really accepted? The woman in John 8 was guilty of great sin, but Jesus didn't use that to define the rest of her life. He uses that encounter to offer her the chance to be saved and leave the temple a changed woman, saved from her sin and given the chance to change her life. She called him Lord, and he told her to sin no more. Even when Jesus was dying on the cross, he turned a what I am to who you say. Luke 23, 39 to 43. Sam, you've got it up. Brilliant. <coughs> One of the criminals, criminals who was hung heaped abuse on him. Are you not the Christ, he said? Save yourself and save us. The other one rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same judgment? We are punished justly for what, we for what we are receiving, that our actions deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. One criminal knew he was guilty of great sin, and he knows that the only way through Christ he can be saved. He recognized Jesus was the Christ and the Savior. And through this, Jesus made him a who? A who that, that would be in heaven and not a what, a dying criminal on a cross. So really, the adulterous woman is more about us. Those of us who have become Christians, I'm sure at some point, would have experienced a moment in life like this woman, where we felt Christ give us a choice to sin no more and follow him. Change who and what influences us. Believe the truth that we can be forgiven and accepted going from a, a who you say I am, going, sorry, sorry, going to who you say I am. And if you're sitting here and not a Christian, maybe Jesus is offering you the same opportunity today to be who he says you are and identify as a child of God. And no matter 
where you are with God at the moment or where you are in your life right now, it's a good time to take a reality check and ask, am I drifting back to a what instead of a who? Are those around you influencing you away from who God says you are? Allowing ourselves to be drift away from who God says we are really impacts how effective we are in our relationship with him. Now, just because I'm talking to you about this today doesn't mean I've got it all sorted. I'm still on that journey myself. But what I'm sharing today is how I got to this point. I'm still making progress in this area, and during management training courses, at some point, there'll be a personality questionnaire to profile you. I don't know if any of you have ever done it before. It's always an interesting read. For me, it always comes back that my motivator is being recognized by my peers for being a good leader, design engineer, and team manager. Now, there's nothing wrong with being recognized for doing a good job. But what we should really be motivated to be is recognized as a child of God and to keep trying to keep ourselves in check. I keep, keep trying that. I'm a child of God first for anything else. So probably worth just asking yourself that same question. How do I identify myself? Am I a child of God? Or do I see myself as something else? Remember, God, he'll, he'll write in the stand for you. It's not a problem. Now, that's really the crux of what I want to talk about. If you've not accepted Jesus into your life, but things you want to be a who, in a minute, I will ask you to stand. Quickly followed by those who feel they may have drifted away from who God says they are. And then followed that by everybody else. And I'll say a quick prayer. So, if you've got to the point, if, if, you're, if you're here as a, as a guest or here as a non-Christian, and feel maybe what I've said connects and maybe you want to be like me, move away from who people say you are to who God says you are, then please take, take the chance to stand up and accept him. And maybe you're in another category where maybe you're thinking, you know what, I've drifted. I don't recognize myself first as a child of God, but I want to. Your opportunity, please, take a stand. Anybody else, please stand and I'll pray. Lord, we thank you you came to us. We thank you that you, as a perfect person, died on the cross just so we could have our sins saved and be with you in heaven. I pray for everyone here this morning that we continue to identify ourselves as a child of God. That foremost, you are who we identify ourselves in. Everything else comes secondary to you. As we go through this week, Lord, gives opportunities to remind others, to encourage others, and show others that at the forefront, we are a child of God. We are who you say we are, not what the world says we are. Amen.